welcome to Birdbeck Voices. I'm Bryony Merritt. This month's podcast will give you some fascinating listening for the cold winter evenings as we speak to three academics about their work both within and beyond the university. We managed to catch up with Professor Colin McCabe while he was in London to talk about the latest film from Birkbeck's Derek Jarman lab, The Seasons in Kansi. Dr Oscar Guardiola Rivera reflects on the Colombian peace process, which may soon see an end to decades of civil war in the South American country. And finally, Professor Jacqueline Barnes, newly elected as a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences, talks to us about her research into the factors that impact early childhood development and the effects of different policy approaches to improving children's life chances. First up, the calendar section. Professor Colin McCabe is Chair of the Derek Jarman Lab at Birkbeck and teaches at the University of Pittsburgh. The Derek Jarman Lab, a research and filmmaking hub for postgraduate students at the college, has this year released a new film, the Seasons in Kansi, Four Portraits of John Berger. The four films, which were made individually and without reference to one another, but also worked together as a feature-length documentary, were produced by the lab and directed by Professor McCabe, Tilda Swinton, Christopher Roth and Bartek Giodosh. The film was screened at the National Portrait Gallery on the 14th of October and at the Birkbeck Cinema on the 11th of November, with a symposium about the work of the great thinker and storyteller, John Berger. Professor McCabe. Please could you tell us about your relationship with Berger and how the idea for the seasons in Kansi evolved? Well, uh, my relationship with Berger started when I was about 18 and I, I, I read a book uh, called A Fortunate Man, which was an account of a rural doctor told in both words and images and which sketched uh, a portrait of a, of a life uh, fully lived, um, which I was very struck by. And then I got up to... A university where at that time in the late 60s people were all talking about Berger's book on Picasso and then when I graduated I read his novel G which I think is one of the greatest novels in English and at the same time he made a series of documentaries called Ways of Seeing which have as it were been uh, the most lively point of discussion about uh, the image in, in Anglophone countries ever since. Uh, one day I, I sort of gave up on my academic career for a bit and I started being a film producer. And one day the head of arts at Channel 4 Television rang me up and said that he had a, a rather interesting proposal from a filmmaker called uh, Timothy Neat who wanted to make with John Berger a, a film about one of Berger's stories. And he said it doesn't really fit my criteria, it might fit yours. So, as I say, even as a bureaucrat, you occasionally get um, a telephone call from paradise. And so I went out to meet John, and the first thing he did was to completely terrify me, because um, I didn't know he was a petrol head, and he turned up on a kind of 1,000cc motorbike, which I was supposed to get onto the back of. But once um, we got to his kitchen and we started talking... I mean, he is, if you've uh, watched the films, he's one of the most engaging talkers and listeners that you will ever meet. And we made the film. It's a film called Play Me Something. And when we were making it, I I thought that perhaps it wouldn't be a bad idea to cast a a fantastically talented young actress who I had worked with on a couple of other films called Tilda Swinton and... She says that I rang her up and said, Tilda, do you know who I mean by John Berger? And she said before I'd finished the sentence, I'm in, because she'd uh, been a a great fan of of Ways of Seeing. 
And they became great friends in the course of the shoot. And I was making a film over 10 years later about the Brazilian photographer Sebastian Salgado. And I was completely stuck with the project and was getting into a lot of trouble, sort of financially and otherwise. And I remember ringing up John and I said, John, who I hadn't talked to for years, I said, John, I'm in a lot of trouble. Can you come and help me? Uh, and he came and uh, helped me, and we made a film together. And I, I actually think it's a, a very, very good film called The Spectre of Hope. So I've known him over a long time, and um, Tilda said to me about six years ago, when we'd finished making a, a film about Derek Jarman, she said, why don't we make one about John now? So that was... That was That's where the idea came from. Yeah. The Seasons in Cancer is made up of four essay films, a genre that you've worked with for many years. Mm. Um, can you explain to us a little bit about what an essay film is and why it was an effective medium for The Seasons in Cancer? Uh, well, I think it's very difficult to define an essay film very specifically because you could say it's a, a documentary with a particular l- l- st- stress on a subjective point of view and a particular kind of stress on, on ideas. I'm not sure that you can give it a very, very uh, fixed definition, but it was certainly the the kind of free-floating form that was needed to kind of capture uh, something of what it was like to to be with John and experience the the pleasures of his company. And the four films represent seasons in Burgess' life, but they're not named after the four seasons. One is called Spring, one is Harvest, um, Mm. and the other two are called Ways of Listening and A Song for Politics. So how do they fit together, and what does viewing them as seasons in an unending cycle add to... Well, I think what what happened was we didn't start off intending to make four uh, films at all. We started off to make one film, and we didn't start off intending to make a film about seasons. But it happened that we scheduled the film for just bef- shooting the film for just before Christmas, and we got into Cancy and about two hours ahead of a blizzard, which actually snow we were we were snowbound for a couple of days, and that's when we shot the film. And uh, I remember going back to the hotel at the end of the shooting and, and looking at the footage, and Tilda coming in and said, "Well, this was winter. We're going to have to make three more films now." And so we made winter, and then we made spring. It doesn't follow exactly because ha- harvest is really the uh, the summer one, and a song for politics is is really the the autumn one. But there there was that idea of the seasons, and it's also the case that this was not what we intended at all. Because when we started off intending to make a film about the seasons, we were thinking of the perpetual rejuvenation, the per- perpetual returning of the seasons but actually as we shot um, over a long period of time John's uh, uh, wife Beverly who's in the first film died and John actually left Cansey so it's uh, the seasons in Cansey not in terms of the the never-ending seasons but in terms of the the end of that period of John's life. And um, filming took place over five years. Did that make it difficult to maintain momentum on the project, or did the slower pace enable formulation of different ways of viewing and understanding Burgess' life? I think it really helped it. It's the only time I've ever made a a film without any commercial or television money involved at all, and there was therefore no pressure on us uh, to deliver. 
And I think the film is all the better for that because we were able to take it at a very slow speed. It also meant that we could fully engage Tilda in it because Tilda has uh, the most packed schedule you could imagine. And to have carved out all the time we needed in one block would have been impossible. But we didn't plan it like that. We made the first one and it got selected for the Talleyride Film Festival. And very fortunately, a couple of people then said they'd pay for the next three. So so that was it. And it's already had two high-profile screenings in London. Um, what, are there opportunities for people who haven't seen it yet to... Uh... Well, it screened uh, originally at Berlin in the Berlin Film Festival in February. It's been picked up by a distributor in America who has released it um, and is just, is just about to issue a DVD. We haven't got a distributor in England and therefore I'm a little unsure what will happen. Certainly there's a market for the DVD, whether the lab has the resources or the time to produce a DVD is something that we'll have to think about. I still vaguely hope we might get a British, a British distributor. So people can find out more about the film on the Derek Jarman. There, the there's all the information on the website and this interview is making me think that I really must think about getting a, a DVD out there because people certainly seem to want to see it, which is very gratifying. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. OK, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You can find out more about the seasons in Cassie at www.jarmanlab.org. For our people section, I've come to the School of Law at 14 Gower Street to meet Dr. Oscar Guardiola Rivera. In the 1990s, Dr. Guardiola Rivera was part of a student movement in Colombia and was involved in talks between the Colombian government and the guerrilla group, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, known as the FARC. These were two of the main players in the civil war that has gripped Colombia from the 1960s to the present day. Following several years of peace talks, the Colombian president, Juan Manuel Santos, and representatives of the FARC agreed a historic peace deal, which was then put to the Colombian people in a referendum in October 2016. The deal, which would have put an end to the decades of war, was narrowly rejected by the Colombian people, and the government and guerrillas returned to the negotiating table once more. It's not yet clear whether the revised agreement will be put to a further referendum or approved by the Colombian Congress. Dr Guardiola Rivera, thank you for talking to us. Could you please tell us what your personal reaction to the no vote in October was? It's a real pleasure to talk to uh, our listeners. Uh, uh, it was a mixed reaction. Uh, I cannot say I was surprised that the uh, main consequence of uh, over 60 years of civil war uh, has been the emergence of uh, both uh, uh, an image and uh, a factual division between rural Colombia and urban Colombia. Uh, one can say uh, that for the most part, uh, people in urban areas in Colombia have seen the war or witnessed the war mainly through their TV screens. Uh, the theater of uh, uh, the war uh, has uh, taken place mainly in the south of the country. And so, of course, if you are uh, uh, someone who has been surrounded in your immediate environment by the war, your reaction to it tends to be different uh, from uh, uh, those uh, for whom the war, although very present, uh, it is mediated. But uh, if you look at the vote in the municipalities uh, which have been hit the hardest by the war, you'll see that the yes vote is overwhelming. So I wasn't surprised. 
but of course uh, it was not what I wanted. Uh, I went to uh, vote to the uh, consulate uh, here in London accompanied by my two-year-old and uh, in a sort of private symbolic act uh, uh, she was the one marking uh, the ballot uh, and that to me was very meaningful because uh, I have two girls uh, none of which uh, uh, were able to grow up in Colombia they grew up in exile with her father in exile and the feeling that uh, 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 in a sense your country uh, has expelled you and your family and your life has uh, had to change because of this violence a violence that is related on the one hand to uh, uh, very concrete conflicts uh, relating to uh, uh, land, resources, and the dissolution of uh, uh, communities' ties with uh, their environments, and on the other hand, with the perceptions about the way people think uh, uh, their politics, uh, have meant that many of us uh, were forced to leave the country. And of course, inevitably, you communicate uh, uh, that kind of anxiety to your to your little ones. And I was very hopeful. Uh, that we would uh, uh, be able to uh, take them back to a country that would welcome them fully. Thank you. And can you tell us a bit about what your involvement was in the peace process or the, the peace discussions that went, took place in the 1990s? Uh, the student movement in the 1990s uh, did take off. Uh, it became a sort of uh, uh, you know, sounding board and representative of uh, the demands of that invisible majority. I mean, already back then, uh, most people in uh, uh, Latin America, you know, it is important to uh, remember that historically speaking, uh, what we now call neoliberalism and so on was tried first. Uh, it was tried out in, in, in Latin America. So we have seen the effects of, of these policies uh, perhaps first than other peoples around the world. Uh, you know, people back then was already reacting against it. And uh, uh, they didn't uh, uh, trust uh, their politicians. They very quickly identified the way in which uh, uh, so-called uh, democratic and law-like institutions were not lawful in the sense that they had lost legitimacy, they had been sequestered by uh, big money and, uh, 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 you know, natural resource extractivism-related uh, uh, interests. And so, uh, unsurprisingly, this grassroots uh, social movement that emerged as a reaction against uh, uh, the systematic uh, violence uh, that was being used back then against opposition uh, uh, forces, per in particular, specifically leftist forces uh, in the, uh, or left of center uh, forces in the country. Mm, it quickly became uh, a sort of representative of those more generic uh, uh, demands. And uh, uh, very quickly we directed our, our efforts towards uh, uh, the achievement of uh, a peace agreement. We were conscious of the fact that uh, in order to achieve peace, there would have to be some kind of power sharing uh, mechanism. Uh, that was something that, of course, immediately put us on a collision course uh, uh, against uh, uh, established uh, forces. Uh, and uh, so we began to make uh, direct contacts with uh, the different uh, uh, actors in this theater of war. It wasn't very difficult for us since most students, of course, do relate to their uh, families in, in provinces and so on and so forth. So uh, we would go uh, back there 
universities in countries such as Colombia would be together with perhaps the, the, the Catholic Church and a few layers of local government, the only structures that would really cover the, entire, the entirety of the territory. So we would move around uh, and that allowed us to, to uh, gain direct contact with these actors. That, you know, getting rid of the, both the media and uh, uh, state apparatus as a mediator did change our perspective uh, in relation to the war. Because, uh, and this is very important, for the first time we were talking to uh, uh, people that uh, could be perceived as human beings rather than just enemies. And we were also listening to them and in a sense uh, changing our own perspectives uh, from their point of view. And uh, after that, uh, you know, having done that, we engaged with uh, the government um, as uh, our demand for a, a, to call a, a constitutional convention uh, picked up. And the government was kind of forced to, to respond to it. Uh, in my case, I was uh, uh, lucky enough to uh, use a uh, uh, shortwave uh, radio that was located in the office of... Uh, uh, you know, one of the basements of the presidential palace, uh, which uh, was kind of the only permanent open channel of communication. And uh, in doing so, we entered into formal, more formal conversations with the uh, then uh, Secretariat of the FARC. And we came very close to uh, uh, initiate a formal agreement in which, you know, they would send representatives to this constitutional convention. And everything was pretty much uh, uh, in place. Uh, unfortunately, the then president decided, without consulting, uh, uh, you know, the, the social movements, to bomb the, their their uh, incumbent on the very day of uh, elections to the constitutional convention, and that was it. it. Must have been really fascinating to be involved in the process at that time, and incredibly frustrating to have it all scuppered at the at the last moment. The, the Colombian government and FARC have now revised the terms of the, of the peace accord after the referendum result, and you've already um, mentioned that you, you believe that at some point you will be able to return to Colombia with your children and it will become an, an open, open country, open welcoming country again. Um, what do you think are the biggest challenges for Colombian society as it goes through the peace process? Now, after the no vote... Uh, the students, the, you know, the contemporary students organized themselves again. And actually, they uh, referred back to the 1990s model. Uh, but they achieved something that we didn't. So this student movement that uh, uh, emerged after the no, immediately after the no vote uh, managed to uh, uh, converge with uh, uh, these uh, other grassroots, uh, more uh, rural movements. And that really, uh, 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 you know, did the trick. They began to occupy the main squares in main cities, but also in municipalities. And they, uh, in doing so, they began to activate uh, other mechanisms that would allow for uh, the peace process, which had taken place in Havana under, you know, cer a certain level of secrecy, and because of that was never really well communicated uh, or, and was never internalized and or owned by uh, uh, the people themselves, you know, this allowed for grassroots organizations to discuss uh, those uh, uh, crucial points of disagreement uh, in uh, relation to the peace accord in Havana uh, and uh, come back with, uh, uh, you know, very concrete uh, 
proposals while at the same time providing a sort of majoritarian uh, grassroots support an additional momentum to the effort. Uh, I think that part of the reason why people have voted no, uh, you know, in addition to the reasons that I already explained, has to do with the fact that the process took place elsewhere, that it took place effectively between the you know, two elites, a government elite and the, uh, and, and the secretariat of the FARC. And there was never, uh, you know, the, 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 to put it otherwise, the, the uh, uh, vote was rushed and uh, there wasn't enough time for uh, people to uh, revise and own up and internalize uh, these uh, agreements. Parties to the negotiating table in, in Havana were able to uh, revise the agreement and they have incorporated between uh, 70 to 80 percent of uh, uh, the demands made by those who uh, voted no. So in a sense what we have now is a revised agreement Mm, which uh, will uh, uh, be implemented uh, uh, via Congress on the one hand, but also via these social movements which have activated local uh, government uh, mechanisms such as the, the uh, uh, so-called Junta de Acción Comunal, sort of town hall uh, uh, mechanisms and so on. As a uh, uh, student and uh, uh, you know, teacher of law and, and, and uh, who spouses ideas of legal plurality and creativity is a most interesting phenomenon and one that I think has plenty of lessons to teach uh, elsewhere. Great, thank you so much for sharing your, uh, your experiences in Colombia and your thoughts on what's happening there now. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. For our research section, I'm talking to Professor Jacqueline Barnes, Director of the Institute for the Study of Children, Families and Social Issues at Birkbeck. In October, she was made a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. Her research has influenced government policy on early years interventions for vulnerable children. She led the evaluation of the Home Start programme, a programme of home-based volunteer support, and implementation of the Family Nurse Partnership, an intervention programme from late pregnancy until children are two for vulnerable mothers. She was also one of the directors of the National Evaluation of Sure Start. Her previous research, following work in the USA, focused on the relevance of the neighbourhood and community for children and parents. Um, thank you for talking to us today, Professor Barnes. Um, could you explain to us a bit about the factors that influence a child's early development? Um, well, there are so many factors that influence development. Um, there are genetic factors, there are factors about how the parents behave, about the sort of context a child lives in and the services available. My research has focused more on the context of the family and also the parent-child interactions rather than on the more biological, neurological aspects of, of influence. And what are the developmental or behavioural markers that have shown improvement through schemes like the Family Nurse Partnership and, and programmes like Short Start? Um, well, the Family Nurse Partnership was developed in the United States primarily um, initially to prevent child abuse and neglect. Um, they found that they were able to reduce the likelihood of, of um, child abuse and also that as the children grew older, because the parents received the intervention until the children were two, the children developed w well academically and by the time they were teenagers they had fewer develop um, behavioural problems like delinquency and that has meant that it's um, shown that 
it can have a big impact on society because the sorts of things to do with educational failure and, and criminality add great cost to services because um, of the cost of, of um, the way that they have to be um, managed. So it was introduced into this country in 2007. I led its evaluation of you know, whether it could actually be introduced into this country where we have a health service, the United States doesn't, and whether the nurses here would like the training and whether the families would accept it. It's been offered only to children, uh, parents who are under 20 and expecting a first child, the mother being under 20 with a first child, because statistically um, children of very young parents, especially those who are disadvantaged, do less well academically and behaviourally. And basically I was able to show that it could be introduced and um, people liked it, the nurses liked it, and um, it was very acceptable. And what are some of the challenges that um, policymakers and the service providers face when they're implementing these programmes? Well, the challenges, one of the particular ones, is that specialised services are expensive to deliver, so they have to balance how to distribute their funds and work out if it's in their best interest as a sort of for, for the community to focus on one particular type of group, such as young mothers, whereas others would argue, and this is what the Shore Start evaluation was arguing, that you focus on a whole disadvantaged community rather than trying to focus on particular individuals, because then you have more likelihood of making large changes, bringing whole numbers of children out of poverty and, and helping more parents. That's the biggest challenge is to, well, that they both have evidence based that the Family Nest Partnership has more evidence, but the Sure Start was a more creative idea to try and make a difference in a different way. Um, and um, what are the challenges that are thrown up when you look beyond the immediate family situation and uh, look at community and neighbourhood factors as well? Well, statistically, in, in longitudinal research, you get a, an amount of variation in development that you can explain by how the parents behave, by the sort of home that they live in, the disadvantage or not, and by the neighbourhood. And the largest amount of variation is always based on the characteristics of the parents, particularly, in fact, mother's education has the most prediction, if you want to know um, how a certain child might develop statistically, whereas the neighbourhood has less statistical um, power to change, make change and um, but it might be easier to change because sometimes it's difficult maybe to find a family who needs help if you focus on a whole neighborhood you could reach more people and so you're hedging your bets you're trying to reach more but the change that you can make will be smaller and that's the biggest challenge and so some would argue that it's better to, to go more for treatment or prevention you know with people you know have problems already or likely to have them and others say prevention is is better because then you can stop difficulties emerging for for more people and surely every government uh, takes their own approach which yes they do and they sometimes the same government changes their approach as they go along so for instance um, back in 97, New Labour wanted very much to bring all families out of poverty and they took a very broad brush approach with that the, the sure start evaluation was quite innovative. It based itself on um, research in the USA and things to do with 
social capital and community development. They wanted to make big changes to large numbers of the population, whereas um, with you know reduced money available, people now tend more to focus on specific targeted groups. And ideologically, some would argue that that's not good, and that if you want to make a real difference, you have to take a larger approach. So this is what is always ebbing and flowing in terms of policy and, and provision of um, services. Yeah, but really important that a study such as yours give the evidence base that uh, well, hopefully the politicians will pay attention to. <laughs> yes, it would be nice. They, they, they do talk about evidence-based practice more and more, but unfortunately some of the evidence takes many years to emerge, and if short-term evidence shows that things aren't quite as good as they hoped it would be, um, the tendency is sometimes to make dramatic changes, to either stop something being delivered or to change it in a way that seems to be you know, fit more with what they hope will happen. And that means that the evidence is weaker because they're, they're changing what, what they're doing and, and it's not based <laughs> on what they started with. And politicians and evidence don't always... Um, um, mix well. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to us about your research today. Okay. That's all for this month's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening. As ever, if you have any comments or suggestions, please do let us know at communications at bbk.ac.uk. Goodbye for now.